Seek and Destroy Metallica is always, typically now, for probably, oh, coming up on three years, I've been using that because we aim to seek out and destroy corruption on all levels. We started today's program at the 3 o'clock hour. Again, 5 o'clock hours is uh, advertised on the website, uh, but uh, but we started a little bit earlier today with uh, Brian Knowles, uh, the head of the African American Studies, another uh, regional... Uh, uh, racial Studies, uh, West Palm Beach School District, and J.P. Lindstroth, who typically once a month, we've been fortunate enough to uh, receive the Lindstroth report from J.P. He's a former Fulbright, Fulbright scholar to Brazil, and he possesses a Ph.D. from Oxford. Uh, we then shifted gears uh, and re-welcomed Dr. Bandy Lee on the program. Uh, she is currently at Yale University and is the author of New York Times bestselling book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And uh, if uh, you have, are not familiar with her work, I urgently recommend you familiarize yourself with her work. Now, we will be hosting and bringing on uh, Gerald Posner. Uh, he has written uh, three New York Times bestselling uh, books, to my understanding. Uh, he's a former Wall Street attorney, and he credits that uh, legal uh, experience uh, and career uh, toward uh, helping him fuel his investigative uh, journalist uh, skills, if you will. And uh, he is uh, quite phenomenal at, at that. Uh, we will be discussing, amongst other things, pardon that uh, uh, interference there, we will be, be discussing, amongst other things, uh, his current book, Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. He is currently standing by. Again, I am host of Discussions of Truth, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. And uh, that's I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-R. Get a shirt. Uh, please urge you to get a shirt. Stop mass media. Uh, look, America is in crisis uh, on many levels, and uh, the pharmaceutical angle is one of them. Whether you realize it or not... Pharmacology is a crisis in this country. The poisoning of America, that's a very stern statement there. Um, so, uh, let's see here. Catch, catch, catch my breath momentarily. Um, and, uh, okay, here we go. So, um, bringing in uh, Gerald Posner right now. Again, this is Discussion to Truth. I am Ian, I am, I am Ian Hamilton Trottier. Hello? Gerald Posner, this is Ian Trottier. Welcome to Discussions of Truth, sir. How are you today? Uh, great, Ian. Uh, great to talk to you. Glad to be on the show. Well, it's uh, wonderful to receive you. Um, are you currently in Florida? 
I am, as a matter of fact, uh, in uh, Miami, so uh, not far from uh, you, I know. Okay, yes, uh, not far in route. I, I am actually um, out of... Uh, out of studio at the moment, but uh, you know, let me let me let me mention uh, let me mention this here, uh, uh, Gerald. And I want it, I, I want you to please. I've, I've I've done a little bit of introduction on your behalf before bringing you on, but I would like uh, like you to introduce yourself or listeners uh, your, uh, yourself. But I but I will say this: um, I started this program uh, about four years ago now. Um, as I heard the crop dusters fly right over my head, I was living on Meridian. Uh, and, uh, and and they were spraying this uh, 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 neurotoxin, according to uh, studies out of Sweden. Uh, you probably uh, remember that. Perhaps you lived through it. Um, what are some early comments? Please, uh, uh, I want you to comment on that. Uh, we had Dr. Michael Hall on the program just a few weeks ago. Um, he'll be actually rejoining us. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or not. But uh, take a moment, Gerald, please, and introduce yourself for listeners. And then, uh, and then talk, about, uh, talk about that for a moment, if you would. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I, I remember it very well. Uh, you know, the, the question is, uh, this was a time when they were worried about uh, Zika. And so they were trying to control uh, the, the mosquito population and they were spraying everywhere. And, you know, I often think in public health crises or what pass for public health crises, uh, sometimes the cure can be as bad or worse than uh, what the ailment is. So this was a case in which they were spraying just randomly and, you know, over wide areas, uh, animals being affected, potentially children, pregnant women, not uh, disclosing what the, the pesticide was. And as you know, the although my book is a history of the American pharmaceutical industry, it does touch on issues of things that are being entered into the in environment. And uh, you know, I, next to last chapter, talk about the fact that the citrus crop, which is a $7.9 billion a year business in Florida, has for four or five years now had a problem with this small insect that originally arrived from China and has destroyed parts of the crops. So to, to control it, uh, the farmers have been allowed to put out uh, this streptomycin and olermycin, two old antibiotics. And it's getting into the water. It's getting into it's the runoff. It's into the land. And there are questions about antibiotic resistance. The fact that we build up this resistance, that children are being exposed to it, that eventually when a bacterium comes along that we won't be prepared for it, a super germ. And the E has actually been approving this, even though the FDA, which is responsible for drugs, doesn't think it's a good idea. So, you know, this happens all the time, unfortunately. So this is phenomenal. You are, according to the Chicago Tribune, a merciless pit bull of an investigator, and you've gone in deeply, not having read these works, but uh, gone in deeply into the JFK assassination. And what I like about what you've done is uh, one of your recent publications is God's Bankers, a history of money and power at the Vatican. What do listeners need to know about any association between the Vatican and money? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was raised uh, Catholic. Uh, I went to Sisters of Charity for grammar school and Jesuits for high school. Uh, and uh, everybody thinks of Catholic religion like every other religion just as a religion. But they forget that it's also a country, that it has its own flag essentially at the UN, um, that it, it has all, it's a little a postage stamp piece of property in the middle of Rome. But that, um, that, that that little piece of property is considered a sovereign country. And so in the middle of World War II, 
it created what it's called the Vatican Bank. The Pope was the only shareholder and only controlled it. And why did it create it, Ian, in the middle of the war? Because it knew that the Americans and British were trying to stop trading with the enemy, as they called it. They didn't want countries to be doing investments and dealings with the, the Nazis and with Mussolini's Italy. And the Vatican was almost all Italian. So they had family members fighting for Italy on the other side of the Vatican wall. And the Vatican Bank secretly invested in German and Italian insurance companies that then has cheated the, the life insurance policies of Jews who were sent to Auschwitz, and they made enormous profits. And when the war was over, they hid all of that, and they said, by the way, remember, we were just neutral. We only invested in the English and the Americans, in Britain and America. And uh, nobody found that. It took uh, nearly, you know, it, uh, it was nearly uh, seven, eight years ago when I had, uh, was in the middle of that project that we came across the files, myself and my wife, Tricia, who works with me on these projects, we found these files in Italy and were able for the first time to expose what had really happened. That's absolutely phenomenal. And I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that listeners can identify with is, um, and I want to get into IG Farm, and of course, we're going down the route of pharma, pharmaceutical. I've got a copy of your book right, right here, Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the, the Poisoning of America, uh, folks. This is, this is a, I'm going to say deliberate in many levels, but, but let's backtrack here and say, hey, Germany, for instance, IG Farben, uh, Germany was uh, the last stronghold of the Holy Roman Empire. So there's there's a lot of valid Vatican uh, connections that are still strongly surviving uh, in, 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 in what we know as today's United States of America and certainly on influence uh, economically, globally. What are some uh, thoughts on, on that there, Gerald? Yeah, no, absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's so interesting, Ian, that, you know, in World War II, one of the reasons that, I mean, the Vatican had the, some of the earliest information about what was really happening in the killing fields in, in Poland and then in Russia once the Nazis invaded in terms of civilians, Jews, uh, communists, everybody being rounded up and killed. They had that information because they had the, the equivalent of people in place to report it. They were priests, local priests in the little villages in Poland and Ukraine and other areas would see the atrocities going on. They would send notes um, and by courier back to the, the Secretary of State's office inside the Vatican. And, uh, and that was being run by a person who became a future pope, and they would share the information with the pope. The reason that the Vatican didn't do anything against Germany is because there was a large German Catholic population. There were German bishops involved. There was German land being held. And not only that, but Hitler had done a deal uh, to... They had a thing before uh, Hitler existed. They started under Bismarck, where German Catholics were supposed to give... Uh, up to eight, nine percent of their income to the church, sort of this tithing, but it was voluntary. Hitler did a different deal with them. When he signed a deal in which the Vatican recognized the, the Third Reich as the legitimate government in the 1930s, he said to the Vatican, I will collect that money for you at the source, like, like at a payroll tax. So it came right out of your wages before you were working for IG Farben or you were working for Mercedes. So before you got your check, that came out, went to the church. It was about $100 million a year in income. It was big money. So again, you know, follow the money as in the old things. And as you say here, IG Farben, uh, we have to remember that although the American pharmaceutical company is what I write about, I talk in the beginning that it has its origins in the German pharmaceutical company because they were the ones at the forefront. They were the ones that had moved from chemical companies to pharmaceutical companies. They all started out as chemical companies. And IG Farben was the biggest drug chemical company in the world before the war and during the war. Bayer and all of the elements only broken up after the war.
Right, and you're looking at the 1925 where uh, I.G. Farben, uh, I, I believe uh, Bayer and BASF become part of this uh, kind of larger umbrella uh, of this transition from uh, from from chemicals. But but also, we, we historically, what many Americans don't even consider is that the predecessor to the two Bushes in the White House was. Uh, a senator, right? Uh, uh, Prescott Bush. Uh, uh, if I've got, he was a senator, or a governor. I can't remember which one. Which one? But uh, he was brought up on uh, as a, on war crimes because he was uh, literally as president of the Union Bank. He was investing in the Nazi regime, yet also investing in um, in, in 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 the Western Alliance, if you will. Uh, Gerald, uh, are you familiar? Uh, being from uh, from UC Berkeley, have you studied in San Francisco? Uh, are you familiar with uh, Dr. Anthony Sutton? Uh, he happens to be uh, one of the uh, the basis is his his publications is uh, one of the basis of uh, a lot of the work that I do. And in fact, in 1972, he gave a uh, he gave a speech in Miami Beach uh, where he divulged information, returned to uh, Palo Alto, and was reprimanded for that. He ended up leaving Stanford within a year. He was a Stanford Uber fellow. Are you familiar with his work? I know I know him. As a matter of fact, I haven't followed him in the detail that you did. I didn't know he was in Miami to give a speech in 72. That was when I guess the convention was taking place. The, Correct. The presidential convention. That's right. Which was uh, turmoil. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, when you talk about, uh, you know, these things, one of the things, by the way, Ian, not only with the connections as you go down the line in that, but one of the things I think that uh, your listeners should always remember, too, you know, my, Tricia, my wife, is is a writer, and she did a couple of years ago a book in 2017 called The Pharmacist of Auschwitz. It's it's about the, the – the, for Bayer, which was part of IG Farben, who then becomes the chief uh, druggist at the dispensary at the largest extermination camp in World War II. And she writes about Farben. And one of the interesting things to remember is this is a company that essentially runs slave labor camps at Monowitz. It's, it's making, you know, enormous outsized profits – pharmaceutical industry. And after the war was over, 24 of the top executives of Farben went on trial for war crimes. Now, you would think, given the weight of the evidence, the slave labor, the number of people died working at these experiments, that that would be the end of them. But believe it or not, those defendants were, were given light sentences. Only 10 uh, were even given sentences of any significant prison, and those were all commuted by 1950 and 51. So you got a slap on the hand if you were running the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world that was also involved in real war crimes and and you didn't spend time in prison. You've got 800 pages of meticulously documented researched uh, material that, that composed this, uh, the book Pharma, uh, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Uh, let's go to chapter 12 here and look at Puppet Master. Who's the Puppet Master here, Gerald? Well, you know, there isn't in the sense that I'd love to be able to say, okay, here's the person, yeah. here's the one, here's the person behind the the the, the, uh, the curtain who's really pulling all the strings. But the strings are being pulled together. It, this is a um, an orchestra. This is a grand symphonic orchestra in which everybody's contributing their note because they're all pursuing the same thing, which is these outsized profits. Uh, you know, at the extent of how far can we push the prices? How far can we get away with? Can we uh, not disclose uh, the bad adverse effects that are rolling in from reports out in the field? You know, you see that time and time again, as you know, on the first birth control pill in 1960 by Cyril, 
15 years, they hid the information coming in about blood clots with women or ovarian cancer until there was a Senate investigation. Uh, if it's the hormones that were being used and being sold uh, to women in the 1960s for menopause and telling them they'd be more feminine and they'd have their sexuality forever, and all that information was being withheld by Wyeth about also the increased incidence of breast cancer, they're still selling the drug and making money, or the opioid crisis that we know today. So the the to me that the the goal is to make as much money as possible, often at the expense of of good health and of patients, and that's the way the system is operated. And they're and it's they're all in it, sort of nudging each other along together. Listeners need to understand. Uh, well, they need they, they need to be known. This name needs to resonate with them. Arthur Sackler. Who was Arthur Sackler, Gerald? Yeah, you know, Ian, to me, he turns out to be one of the most fascinating characters I knew almost nothing about before I started the book five years ago. Uh, Some people who are listening might say Sackler. That name sounds familiar. They may have heard the family name. The family owns Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma is the producer of OxyContin, the most celebrated blockbuster uh, opioid uh, painkiller that's sort of the poster child for the opioid crisis. But Arthur Sackler died before... OxyContin was ever developed. He turns out to be um, one of three brothers, all of them psychiatrists. They bought Purdue Pharma in the 1950s. And as I found out, although OxyContin is what we put the Sackler name together with, Arthur Sackler is the person who started medical advertising in a small little firm in the 1950s and revolutionized the way the drug industry promotes drugs. And he's the one who really came up with the aggressive forms of marketing today that has been the hallmark for the last 70 years and has created so many of the problems that we've seen. He's the man who took Hoffman LaRoche's Librium, which was a mild uh, sort of a tr- a tranquilizer, anti-anxiety pill, and made it a better, took Valium, which for 15 years also mild an- anti-anxiety, sort of the predecessor to Xanax. He made it the best-selling drug in America for 15 years with his promotion, made it the first $100 million drug in the industry and the first billion-dollar drug in the industry. He and his brothers were also sort of card-carrying members of the Communist Party back in the 40s and 50s. So it's interesting that they become unbridled capitalists later on and forgot almost all of their, you know, their social causes that they were fighting for. Money as time went along. Is there is there an underlying agenda here? Now, let me let me insert this, uh, Gerald, in in your research. Uh, so so when the Zika sprang or the sprang for the Zika virus uh, happened in Miami in 2016. Uh, the pesticide known as Enalid, uh, other trade name was Dibrom, is uh, it, it banned in Europe. It was rejected by Ricky Rossell, uh, governor of Puerto Rico. The World Health Organization tried to ship him a, a shipment of it. it. It was rejected. I'm talking about the pesticide now. Uh, and the, the outcry in Miami Beach was, don't spray us with this pesticide. Uh, it's, a, it's a neurotoxin, yet uh, Rick Scott and the CDC... And then the local Hylene uh, 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 Hudak, I think was her name, uh, deputy mayor of Miami-Dade, uh, and, and Philip Levine, the mayor at the time Miami Beach, were basically turning a deaf ear to these uh, to these citizens. I was in a town hall meeting. There were 300 people. They were all screaming. Like you say, they're pregnant women. They're screaming. And, and, and so a friend of mine says, hey, Ian, you know, there's something to this. And so as we began looking into this, and this is where I became, this is where I went down the, uh, doc, the road of Dr. Sutton. But what interested me, Gerald, was that in the, the, the Zika virus had been discovered in the Uganda forest. And Michelle Gillen, who's a former, I, I think she's a former, you left CBS uh, reporter there to Miami. Uh, she was actually in Uganda 
doing research. She was prohibited from uh, giving her research as she returned to CBS. Uh, but but this is a Rockefeller-funded uh, science uh, scientist. Uh, the extraction process of the Zika uh, found, uh, discovered in, in monkeys. Again, this is 1940s. And so then, and the Rockefellers continue to own a patent on this virus. This is ACT, uh, ATCC, I think is the, the name of the organization based out of London. That, that currently, uh, if you've got the proper credentials, you can get the, a, 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 a vial of this uh, Zika virus for, for your own testing, uh, where it may be, however that protocol works. Um, and then on the flip side, Gerald, I, I'm looking at studies uh, actually out of Cal Berkeley uh, that show in the 1950s, uh, and this is common, uh, standard oil dissolves in, 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 in 1911, uh, Rock, uh, Rockefeller Foundation form, uh, forms in 1913, but the Rockefellers remain, uh, uh, remained in control of all of the 30, I think it was 32 uh, companies um, that, uh, that Standard had dissolved into. And you're looking at Exxon and uh, I believe Mobile, uh, what is today Chevron, Standard Oil in New Jersey. They remained the largest shareholders, so they didn't actually lose the power over um, uh, over their uh, uh, over their monopoly. Um, and this this continues to this day in, in, in a large in, in a large sense. But what I'm getting at here is this: is that the the Rockefeller Foundation had ties, controlling ties to not only the Zika virus but also uh, also the pesticide. Um, and, 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 and what do you, so, so what, so what do you, you can go into Hegelian, I can go into, well, you can follow the Hegelian dialectic to Germany, but what is there, is there an underlying theme here that perhaps is, uh, is masking, uh, uh, being masqueraded for the American public? Is there something here that's not being told? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Ian, you raise a, a few important points in there. I mean, first of all, there's no doubt that Every you know matter that's deemed a public health crisis, and whether it's, it was Zika that was the scare of the moment, or whether it's uh, now COVID nineteen, presents, as I always say, a great profit opportunity for the uh, for the pharmaceutical business and other businesses. That's a cold calculus, but it's true. And the COVID uh, is one of the greatest profit possibilities that the pharmaceutical business will have in a generation. Yeah. Uh, the, and the when you said before, it was very interesting when you were talking about Nailad being uh, sprayed in Miami Beach, how there were objections to it, but then there were those who were for it. And when the powers that be want to have something move forward, they always find the one or two organizations or people that are for it, and they rely on them. And when, you know, we were talking before about the spraying of those two vintage antibiotics on the citrus crop in Florida, the streptomycin and oxaliteracycline. The FDA and the CDC objected when that was being proposed. So you've got the, uh, the medical and the CDC both saying no. The EPA said yes, under the Obama administration, we think it's okay. So what did they go with? They went with the EPA. They would go with the one they wanna go with, which is the one that says yes. And before the Rockefeller Foundation, and certainly patents, look at patents are a big part of the problem in the drug industry across the board, because we, the United States, the only country in the world, we're one of two countries in the world that allow direct-to-consumer advertising for drugs, the other being New Zealand. Every other country has enough sanity not to allow drug companies to advertise directly to consumers. Um, and on top of that, we're the only drug company in the world that allows drug companies to have unfettered pricing power. In every other country, there's some negotiation with the government or some committee set up. Here, they can set the price until the breaking point, and they do. So that's part of the problem. But there is a democratization taking yeah. place in terms of 
the money end. And here's what I mean by that. So you have, let's say you have the Rockefellers, you have the uh, the Squibs, you have the Pfizer family, Johnson & Johnson, the old uh, drug families that have been involved. Now those are public companies and the heirs still have a lot of shares. But in 2015, Forbes magazine, which create, you know, does their wealthiest 400 list and then they do their wealthiest families. The wealthiest families list broke in at number 11 or 12, the Sackler family we were talking about before at $14 billion. Now they came out of nowhere. They, Forbes called them the Oxy clan. So they jumped ahead of the Rockefellers. They jumped ahead of the Squibs, ahead of the Johnson and Johnson family. And how? Because they had a blockbuster drug that had $35 billion in sale, their, their opioid painkiller. So what the drug industry can do if you're a privately held company and you hit the right drug, and it, although they over-promoted it, oversold it, and that's why there are so many dead in part, you can all of a sudden jump ahead of what I call these generations of robber barons before you and become one yourself. So I just hosted, I, I, I don't take sides politically on the program. I think both uh, political parties are, are corrupt and, 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 and I urge right. listeners to identify with, with being American and doing everything they can to represent the constitution they've inherited. But we, we just hosted, uh, I just hosted uh, Dr. Bandy Lee uh, from Yale, uh, who's written uh, the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And, and at some point, Gerald, uh, she, uh, what she was doing as far as speaking out as a psychiatrist, and she's facing the Goldwater rule, which prohibits her from endorsing or, 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 or diagnosing, if you will, uh, political, uh, uh, candidates. Um, but it, it, she began speaking out about her view on the mental stability of, uh, who, what is now, who is now the, the current, uh, commander in chief. And at some point in time, uh, her, she was silenced. She was gagged. Um, by by mass by by the order the the powers that be but 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 uh, CNN and whatever it may be it, it, she was being asked to speak and address the, uh, her, her her topic she said that the APA uh, took a harsh stand on her that's the American Psychiatric uh, Association and basically shut her down and it was, she she noticed that it was it was it was federally funded where are you finding in your research Gerald. Um, that the pharmaceuticals are, if you're finding, are the pharmaceutical powers uh, integrating into the federal yeah. government? The, the, I mean, the, the, they, first of all, they have their own independent lobby and it's enormous. And they have a public-private partnership. So we, the taxpayer in America, have spent, Ian, since the late 1930s through 2019, over $900 billion, nearly a trillion dollars, on public research at the National Institute of Health. And that money has then been taken by private pharmaceutical firms and turned into drugs for big profit. And we could talk about a few of those, like the first AIDS drug. It's a disgraceful story. Or Truvada, another HIV drug. But in addition, you say something very important. People say to me sometimes, you know, who's to, who's to blame here, Republicans or Democrats? And I tell you, I can go over this in decades and I can show you which party fell short at which time, but they have both fallen short over time. They both sold their souls at different times to the pharmaceutical lobby. Uh, and just most recently, as a matter of fact, we had the HEROES Act passed by the House, which is a, a, a $3 trillion bailout package that will certainly be dead when it gets to the Senate. The, some progressives tried to get language in there about anti-profiteering, making sure that the drug companies could not price gouge on any COVID treatments or vaccines they developed, and that couldn't even get into the draft of the bill. That's how strong they're, you know, both parties are afraid of aggravating pharma. And, and Dr. Lee, by the way, you know, when she was uh, talking, when she said that she was shut down by sort of the mainstream media, I mean, I've had, I've had more resistance from 
you know, in previous books, I've uh, gone on a lot of uh, cable shows, national shows and everything else. I've had more resistance this time from some producer that I've known uh, because they say, and I'll, I'll summarize this in essence, uh, you've got a negative story. You know, we're all hoping for a COVID treatment or a vaccine, and you're talking about mm -hmm. them price gouging, and that's way down the road. And what I say is, look, I want them to get a treatment and vaccine or whatever, uh, something to stop COVID as much as anyone else, but why can't we walk and chew gum at the same time? Why can't we also keep our eye on the ball that if we wait to the end to talk about pricing, they'll have the leverage they always do, and they'll take us to the coals. And even the APA, the American Psychiatric Association that, that you mentioned before that Dr. Lee had been with, that's controlled in part by pharma. I mean, that is right. those, those psychiatrists. It. Yeah, but those pharma controls many of those medical associations. So it's not surprising she would run into resistance if she crossed the line. They didn't like it. So, Gerald, let's get into COVID-19. And, and, and of course, we're, we're, the main topic here is uh, we've got Gerald Posner with us, author of Pharma. Greed, lies, and poisoning of America. Let's let's get into your views for for a moment here, uh, so that listeners can kind of put things into perspective of what we're facing. And we, of course, and now we've got uh, eight weeks into these uh, nationwide protests that are growing and uh, hopefully squelching. Not not sure where this is going to go, but uh, but but what are your thoughts here uh, on 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 this COVID nineteen outbreak? So you know, I have, as you know, um, the second to last chapter is a chapter called the coming pandemic, and. Um, in it, it talks about not a viral pandemic, as this is a virus, it talks about a bacterial pandemic, something like the bubonic plague, this fear that doctors, infectious disease doctors had that I interviewed back in 2016. Um, a number of them on the record said, look, uh, it's only a matter of time until some super germ uh, develops that is new to us, and we have no antibiotics to treat it because we have so many antibiotics in the system, so much is being prescribed that we've built up resistance to it. And I start the book off with something called Patient Zero, who's a woman in 2016 in Reno, Nevada, who dies yeah. of a super germ and every antibiotic known to man is given to her uh, from the CDC and everything else and none of them work. So this is the fear that it becomes communicable. And they end the chapter, one of these doctors, Karen Bush, who's a professor now saying, it's not a matter of when, you know, if, it's yeah. a matter of when. The book was published on March 10th. The next day, the WHO declared COVID a pandemic. Not quite what I imagined would be uh, the case, but I have a lot of respect for both viruses and bacteria from having done this book. I understand that viruses can morph over time and change, and tuberculosis is a perfect example of a virus that used to infect only the adrenal glands and inside the kidneys, and over time in order to survive, because it needs a host, it needs us, it needs humans, it morphed to be able and mutated in order to infect the lungs of humans and therefore irritated them enough that it caused you to cough and it made the virus spread around much easier. So it's fascinating how viruses do mutate. COVID, I think, is one of those things. It's a novel virus, so we have no immunity to it. The big question is, what's the death rate? What's the infection rate? And when people rely on models, they are models for that very reason. It's like somebody who says the stock market is going to be 20,000 next year or 30,000. They don't know. One of them will look brilliant and one will look like an idiot. And the models are pretty much like that. They learn as they go along. We'll only know when we're on the other side of this if it was more pathogenic and, 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 and more easily transmissible than we expected or less so. And then we can say, ah, Monday morning quarterbacking, we should have closed down earlier or we shouldn't have or we shouldn't have locked the system down. But in the meantime, we're learning as we go. Your former Wall Street attorney, you uh, defended uh, the the doctor that was uh, uh, Michael Jackson's main physician 
at the time of his death, uh, you've done some beyond incredible work in. in, I, wrote, in I wrote about him. Yeah, I, I did an article on him. Uh, I, I was at the trial with that doctor, as a matter of fact, and and followed that uh, that case. Yeah, very interesting. And you know, Ian, by the way, not to talk about that case, but you talk about the mainstream media and how it's bankrupt often, right? How how it hasn't reported. Correct. You know, one one of the things that has happened, in addition. Not only have we become one subject at a time media, so you know it right. used to be that you could right. talk about other things, but now it's you know it's it's either it's all impeachment or it's all COVID or it's all uh, you know a, a Floyd murder and 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 the resulting uh, protests, and then everything else gets pushed out aside and we forget what was being done ten minutes earlier. But in addition, there are many instances, and I talk about them in the book in pharma, in which the media has been used by pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. who prepare almost what they call these mats. They're, they're, there's a, it's a term they use inside the industry in which they prepare almost an editorial piece that needs to just be adapted by an editor at a newspaper or blog online or for a podcast. And that's when you open up some magazine and you see an article or you open up and you read a blog and it says new miracle drug possible game-changing drug being offered for Alzheimer's, possible, you know, uh, yep. big breakthrough. Those are all pharma-related. The reporters aren't doing the legwork on them. They've become sort of the PR representatives almost for the pharmaceutical industry. Instead of going out and actually doing reporting, they're fed a piece that really becomes more public relations than anything else, and you're giving the drug companies free publicity by putting them in mainstream magazines and blogs, and it's a shame because it's allowed the media to be, not all, there are some great reporters out there who are really doing great investigative work, but for the lazy part of the media, they just become like press agents. Yeah, beautifully said, uh, Gerald, great perspective. What I wanted to get at here for a moment is, uh, is, 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 is the middle class is taking a massive hit under this COVID-19 uh, pandemic and where this goes, six to a year, uh, six months to a year, uh, will show. But uh, what's it, uh, thirty million plus uh, Americans uh, filing for unemployment? Insert this, Gerald, to the conversation. You've got Bill Gates, who's a uh, a computer uh, engineer, scientist. Uh, you've got uh, Microsoft uh, being being his main company, and 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 as of the past twenty years. He's now started to, I'll, I'll use the term, invest in healthcare. Um, and, and going back to the Rockefellers, we can look at 1913, and they uh, invested in what is known as the Peking Medical College. Uh, so the Rockefellers have been, not to use it inappropriately, but I'll be using the word again, invest in Chinese healthcare uh, for, for over 100 years. Insert then a patent uh, that was awarded to uh, international patent to Microsoft just a few months ago. Uh, at least this is uh, knowledge uh, available via Google, uh, public search engine. Uh, we hope it represents the public. Um, uh, the patent is a cryptocurrency. And the cryptocurrency uh, is run off of microchipped human beings. And we associate that with my, Bill Gates already saying, calling for microchipping of human beings. Uh, yet Microsoft now being awarded a patent to run a cryptocurrency off of uh, human beings. We're getting into economics, and I don't, I don't want to get too far away from the pharmaceutical angle. And of course, there isn't much of a pharmaceutical angle in cryptocurrency unless we're looking at uh, the pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, uh, profitizing off of this. What, what is your thought, just to pull away if you need to, what is your thought on that patent? 
Well, I mean, it, not just um, that pattern, but hold on a second. I mean, I talk about this, and this is a very important point, a key point, I think, Ian, you raise. The idea of patents and ownership on some fundamental rights that affect um, us broadly, uh, in, in whether it comes to health or whether it comes to privacy rights, this is an area in which I think patents should not exist. I mean, the original idea of patents, people should remember this and your listeners, the original idea of patents was that if you were working, you're a man or woman and working on some unusual invention that might really be a benefit in whatever field it was, you could actually get a right to say, I'm the creator of this. So some big company a mile away couldn't steal it from you, rip it off, and you'd be left out in the dust without the ability to fight them. Instead, all the patents today are being held by large companies and the individuals who even work on the drug patents inside the laboratories at Pfizer, Merck, and the rest of them, they don't own those drug patents when they come out. It's owned by the companies that they work for. Yep. So the idea that the, that we can't as a society and government, you know, there's an organization out of Norway called CEPI. It's a, this coalition for epidemics and, and uh, the pandemics. They've tried in the last four or five years to get drug companies to work together to produce a vaccine that no one would own. It's what, you know, there's a chapter I have in the book called Can You Patent the Sun? That's when Jonas Salk, who invented the, the polio vaccine, was asked in the 1950s, do you own it or does the drug company own it? And he said, uh, could you patent the sun? No one owns it. Everybody has the right to it. Well, you know, that's a rare view in drugs because now everybody wants to own the patent and they want the right to it to make money on it forever. And we do have an ability, by the way, at least when it comes to pharmaceuticals, but nobody's going to do it. No president's going to do it. It's, there's a section of the law, and although I haven't practiced law in a long time, is that one part of where the, the lawyer's brain is still good is a section of, it's for any of your listeners who want to look it up, is 28 USC, United States Code, section 1498. It's my favorite unused part of the legal code. 1498 would be like eminent domain for, for patents, meaning the government could say to Pfizer, Merck, Moderna, or whoever else came up with a uh, with a, uh, a breakthrough drug that was considered important, whether for COVID-19 or whatever else, you've priced that too high. We're going to take it and produce it at cost and distribute it free to people. Um, but nobody's willing to do that because they know that it would be considered a socialist takeover or whatever of the government, and they're all afraid to do it or a private enterprise. Right. So um, we have the ability to do it. We have the ability to step in on the Gates patent or, or to, uh, any of the rest of them. But the problem is finding a president, Democratic or Republican, not so beholden to corporate interests that they might be willing to do that. And I don't see that on the horizon. No, absolutely not. And, and your words are like poetry. I'm going to read an insert here, and, and, and you can you can follow up on this or even go. There's so many different angles we can go, Gerald. What a wonderful discussion we're having, in my view. Uh, why a milestone decision by the FDA in the 1960s led the agency to miss all early evidence of antibiotic drug resistance, creating the opening to superbugs that now sicken 3 million Americans annually and kill almost 50,000? Is it more blatant than that that these pharmaceutical companies, or at least the heads of the pharmaceutical some pharmaceutical companies, are watching as uh, as greed, if you will, as as you will, as it's part of your title, uh, destroys uh, the American people, poisons the American people. Is this a capitalistic problem? What what really is the problem here uh, that that Americans should be should be honing in on? Okay, so the, I think the problem here is it's very interesting, and you know the. I think that pharmaceuticals are somewhat unique. And you, Ian, would expect a writer who spent the last five years on a book to say, oh, my, my issue is a little bit unique from the rest of the, but, but only in this sense. So in terms of capitalism, it's definitely a capitalism problem. The is most of the time we're accustomed to somebody making a product 
and then they sell it if they are going to price gouge to us as consumers at some outrageous price. All right. In drugs, it's different than any other field because in drugs, the company that manufactures the product, the drug company, is not selling it to the end consumer, us, the patients. They're selling it to doctors because doctors have to prescribe it. Doctors don't actually buy it, but unless the doctor prescribes the medication from the drug company, we, the consumers, can't get it. So the drug companies have to advertise and use their promotion and, and do everything they can to seduce the doctors to write their brand versus a competitor's brand. And then the doctors write it to us. And at the same time, since 1997, they've been advertising tens of billions of dollars spending on promotion to us, the consumers, even though we can't walk into a pharmacy, we can't go to CVS, Walgreens or whatever else and say, by the way, we want that diabetes medication or we want Adderall or whatever else. We can't do it without a prescription, but they're advertising it to us so that we will go and ask doctors for it and say, what about that new drug I heard that can, you know, get you back to losing weight or whatever in, in two weeks. So that's what they have done here. And where the problem is, is that what we talked about before, we don't put a check on it. So we are at the intersection of health, what really matters to people. And instead of putting some controls on it in this belief of free enterprise, we've allowed it to be unchecked. And the result of that is the, you know, the 800 pages or that, that you see inside yeah. the book about one story after another about companies doing something against the public good. And here's just one quick example. In, in the early 1980s, when HIV and AIDS was first identified, before there was a treatment, there was a researcher at the NIH, the National Institute of Health, uh, the public organization that said, I think he said that an antiviral might work to slow the replication of the virus. And he saw an antiviral at Burroughs, the, the, the drug company that he thought could be worth testing. So the NIH went to Burroughs, a private company, and said, can we have that drug to test that you have. Burroughs was not manufacturing it. It was not selling it because it had tested it inside its own company and deemed it too toxic. Burroughs couldn't even make the compound because they hadn't made it in so many years. So the NIH had to help them make the actual drug compound for testing. Burroughs then gave it to the National Institute of Health, tested it for a year, and they developed AZT, which became the first drug to treat um, HIV. Now, Burroughs then said, oh, thank you very much. Thanks for testing our drug, for telling us about it, for finding it and doing all the work. We want it back. They put a patent on it and they priced the drug at $12,000 a patient, which at the time in the mid 80s was the most expensive drug on the planet. There were a lot of protests, ACT UP, uh, AIDS activists, and they lowered the price to 10,000, still the most expensive drug. They made billions of dollars on that drugs. So my point is that here's a situation in which a drug company is sitting on a compound that they have technically a patent to, but they're not using it. The government comes in in a public health crisis, HIV and AIDS, and says, we'd like to test it. The government does all the work with some private financing, develops the drug, then the drug company puts a patent on it and makes billions at taxpayer expense and overcharges patients who are in risk of losing their lives. That's a disgrace. Yet most people who are listening now to your program will not remember it. They may have read about it at the time because we get outraged by these things one and then they recede into our memory, and the drug companies do it again to us. Yeah, and and, and watching watching the mainstream media doesn't 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 uh, doesn't help that as they they just repetitively repetitively like a soap opera go over these uh, whatever whatever the choice of topic is. Uh, uh, Gerald, uh, early in this uh, in the inception of the program, uh, one of my first guests and initial guests was Charlotte Eiser, but now Charlotte. Uh, was uh, fired by Ronald Reagan as she had had 
headed uh, helped head her the Department of Education. She was opposed to a program called Best the Betterment Betterment of Education through Science and Technology. And as a result of her firing, uh, and as she supported. Uh, is just trying to change the education system. She's found corruption in it and tried to try to try to try to straighten it out. She wrote a book called "The Deliberate Dumbing Down of Americans." Could that be applied uh, from 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 your understanding of what you've done to 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 cause you to write this uh, to write pharma, greed, lies, and poisoning of America? Is it possible, Gerald, uh, that Americans are deliberately being poisoned? Yeah, I understand what you mean. I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, there's certainly been a poison in the sense that uh, being dumbed down is uh, part of the of the process. G- you know, give people just the right. same type of uh, news they want all the time as opposed to what they really need. But I will say one thing, though, Ian, which is interesting. One of the reasons I know that the drug company, and I know this now from having done it, that they get away with it for so long is they've also made it deliberately complicated. So, for instance, um, it, just in passing to mention, there are two chapters in here. One's called Billion Dollar Orphans. It's about uh, the Orphan Drug Act, a law passed in the 1980s to make sure drug companies didn't overlook small patient populations that were affected by rare genetic diseases. And another one is about pharmacy benefit managers. And most people are listening will say, say what? And those are about middlemen who have formed in the drug uh, distribution line that are responsible for part of the high drug prices. These are multi-billion dollar companies, Express Scripts, uh, CVS's Caremark. They're some of the biggest in the country. And my point is that when you read those chapters, you realize that the drug industry has become adept at manipulating the loopholes in the law. Everything is technically legal, but it is so complicated that the the average lawmaker has trouble keeping up with it. The, 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 uh, the people who are supposed to be enforcing it, the FDA, are outgunned all the time in terms of power and the ability to do anything, even if they have the good intent to do it, if they haven't been co-opted. And then on the other hand, um, the public, it just is too much for them to take in because of the amount of information is there for people throw up their hands and say, high drug prices, it's too expensive. What can be done? And then when you get into the details of what can be done, it's not a simple fix. And that works to the benefit of the pharmaceutical companies because it is so complicated that people walk away thinking, I can't fix it. So one example, Gerald, might be, and as we, as we wind down here, one example might be uh, vaccine court. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that vaccine court is a, a, one of those ideas that's good. It should be there all the time. We talk about this. You know, what happens, what happens when you have a situation where you roll out a vaccine and it, you say, now, uh, we want this to be as close as possible to being mandatory. Everyone's going to have to get this. Um, and then all of a sudden you have individuals who want to either opt out for religious purposes or they, they have right. side effects or they think they might be, uh, you know, t- too difficult to win. $300 million have been recovered. I know at least in the vaccine court, this national vaccine injury compensation program. Right. But still, the thing is, in the drug companies basically walk away shielded. Right. And, and this is the part you have to remember. Who's paying for the vaccine compensation? We are. So we're paying for their mistakes often. Uh, and you know that there are incidents in the book. There's incidents even with the polio vaccine in the mid-50s in which one of the companies selected by the government to make it, Cutter, which some people may know is an insect repellent company, they made the batch of vaccine wrong. So live vaccine went out. It sickened like 30,000 children in 10 Western states. A couple of hundred were left paralyzed and uh, like a dozen died. Guess what? Cutter didn't pay anything for that because the government filled in all the claims. Same thing in 76 with swine flu. The four companies that made the drug demanded from the government that they had full indemnity for any liability 
including negligent production of the vaccine, and the government gave them that. So 4,000 lawsuits filed, government attorneys represented it. When people got sick with Guillain-Barre, which is this uh, sort of neurological symptom that no one knew would be around, the government paid the cost. And the same thing will happen for a vaccine for COVID. So the drug companies walk away with the profits while we, the taxpayer, end up picking up what I call the mess from uh, the vaccine claims. The cases, we've got Gerald Posner with us, and the cases that Gerald draws on throughout throughout his book, Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America will absolutely astonish you. It's sickening, folks, uh, what's going on here. Gerald, I tend to follow the money trail, okay? I think you are, you already mentioned that. Um, so if we're looking at, and I want to get your opinion and, 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 and then some closing thoughts from you on this, uh, if we look at the money trail, in the United States, it has in the United States. It hasn't always been this way. The U.S. Constitution deliberately gives the power to coin money to to Congress. That's Article One, Section Eight. Uh, that changed in 1913 under under former uh, Princeton University professor Woodrow Wilson, uh, of course, uh, then acting uh, U.S. president, uh, where the Federal Reserve Act got got passed through Congress. Um, is it possible? Gerald, in, in your view, is it possible that these pharmaceutical companies could possibly be hiding behind a financial curtain, uh, stealth in a sense, invincible uh, of this Federal Reserve uh, 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 private well, central bank that we have? Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, you know, I always say, Ian, you know, I never say it as a journalist, as invest any investigative journalist who ever says, that's impossible without first looking into it, it shouldn't call themselves a reporter because you never can say anything is impossible, anything is possible when you look at it. But the thing is this, if they ever do get in the United States a, a person who comes in who says, I really want to regulate them, and I'll use Bernie Sanders as the example. Yeah. I'm not saying, you know, as you said before, I try to say apolitical, I'm, I'm, I castigate both Democrats and Republicans, but if you have Sanders or somebody who comes in and says, I'm going to control prices, I'm going to regulate prices, I'm going to make sure that they have patents for only five years, and after three years, they're going to have to license it at a maximum of 8%. Guess what? The curtains just ripped away from them in some ways. So, uh, But the key is what you said in the beginning. Follow the money. If you follow the money, you'll find out where the special interests are. You'll find out who's who's participating in and getting the the golden part of uh, you know all of the, the benefits. And one of the things that I think your listeners, you won't be surprised with this, and many of your listeners won't be, some may be, Many patient advocacy groups, you'll hear about an advocacy group that's been formed because of some rare disease or it's there to help people with diabetes or whatever else. And I'm not saying this across the board, but many of the patient advocacy groups are sponsored by pharma. Mm -hmm. They're out there to go to Capitol Hill and get special access or funding or payment for those drugs that are going to treat those parts. And they are part of the entire operation. So, again, follow the money and you'll get a pretty good idea of what's going on. Gerald Posner, three-time New York Times best-selling author, former Wall Street uh, attorney. He's got his JD from UC Hastings. Uh, Gerald, uh, some closing comments from you. Uh, perhaps what's the best foot forward for uh, listeners to be taking? Well, I, I think that you know one thing is I mean, one simple little fix. By the way, anybody who actually gets a pill prescribed to them from their doctor, they're going to fill it. When you go to your pharmacy, uh, 39 states uh, still have what they call a gag rule. It may be uh, eventually outlawed entirely, but it's not yet. And the gag rule means that if you have insurance uh, covered by your employer, and like you said, 30 and 40 million people don't right now, they're out of work. But if you have insurance at all, uh, your copay may be $10, $20, whatever for that drug. The pharmacist is under a gag rule from the drug industry. They cannot tell you if it would be cheaper for you to go ahead and pay cash for that drug. Hard to believe, but true. So if 
you would only pay $2 if you were a cash patient, but you're paying $10 under your copay. They can't tell you that. So ask if simple little advice, if you're getting a drug, ask the pharmacist if it would be cheaper out of your plan if you paid cash, then they have to tell you. Uh, on, that's the, wow. mac, uh, the 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 micro view. The macro view is um, I urge people when they get a chance and they talk to politicians, even local ones at the at the local community, if they talk about drug prices, there are fixes here. And the biggest fix is making sure that the United States moves with the rest of the world and at some point negotiates drug prices and not and it, with the companies. It has to happen and it has to be a, a something that brings us into the 21st century because this idea that we allow them to set the prices, right. it's like saying to the, the wolf in the chicken coop, you decide how many chicken you want to take with you. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, wonderfully said, Gerald. By the way, you sound crystal clear. You sound great. Uh, whether you've got your own studio or not, you, 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 no, you come in. I just did buy an external USB mic, and you're the first person <laughs> I'm trying it out on. So I'm very glad to hear that it was worth the $35 investment. Gerald Posner, uh, look forward to keeping in touch with you, sir. Thank you for joining Thank the program. You. Keep up the great work. Uh, look, uh, folks, uh, men, women, uh, students, executives, whoever you, you may be, uh, I, I appreciate you listening to the program. And you, we've received, uh, or I, we, uh, Windwood Radio, we uh, now uh, run on uh, windwood1.com. Uh, uh, but anyway, so uh, this program, and there's, 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 there's a lot of people that deserve credit when I say we. Uh, a lot of people came together to, uh, to develop this and, uh, coming up on four years, uh, we have received some incredible guests and, uh, what a day we've had here on discussion to truth, uh, starting with JP Lindstroth and Brian Knowles. Uh, discussing the protests and really the race crisis, if you will, in America, uh, transitioning to the dangerous case for Donald Trump, uh, Yale psychiatrist Dr. Bandy Lee, and uh, now just hosting Gerald Posner, investigative now investigative journalist, former Wall Street attorney. Uh, and by the way, uh, Gerald, uh, and, and and when you get this book. Again, 800 pages of meticulously destroying the pharmaceutical industry. Um, he means business. And uh, he is, by all means, and you can tell by the tone of his voice and how exact and precise his responses were, a merciless pit bull of an investigator. And we're very fortunate, as far as I'm concerned, in this country, in the world, to have someone doing this type of work to represent us and speak out for us. Uh, what I was going to mention is he's a former national debating champion as well uh, at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, having won something called the Micklejohn Award. Next week, folks, uh, Miriam Hennon joins the program for a fourth time. Yes, she she she'll be joining us again for the fourth time, uh, and she will be she'll be she'll be joined uh, by Dr. Michael Hall, uh, who practices uh, medicine there in Miami Beach, um, and uh, of course I have been remote 
uh, now for a number of months. Um, but uh, Hennen and Hull, if you will, will be uh, discussing uh, Dr. Fauci. And keep in mind that Dr. Fauci has a lawsuit against him filed by Dr. Michael Hull. We'll then be joined by Temple Grandin. Uh, the Autistic Brain is the title of her book, The Autistic Brain, Helping Different Kinds of Minds Succeed. Claire Danes portrayed her in an HBO series, or excuse me, uh, HBO movie title of her name, uh, Temple Grandin. Uh, that was a few years ago. So Temple will be joining us after Miriam and Dr. Hall. That'll be Discussion of Truth. That'll be the show next week, unless it develops further, which it may. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be moving forward in June with an uh, author of A Professor Everywhere, who will be getting into artificial intelligence, uh, Nick Binge, and uh, also Gary Byrne, a former Secret Service uniformed division officer under Bill Clinton. Just two of the guests who are scheduled to join us here uh, next month. Uh, let, me, let me just insert this, because, because the, 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 the protests that, we, that we're undergoing uh, across this country are really jaw-dropping, in my opinion. Uh, Dr. Lee, who is psychiatrically aims to prevent violence, okay, um, uh, it, it, we've got these protests that have turned violent. Whether it's the police being violent, or it's protesters being violent, or it's outside anti-fascist groups, or whatever it may be, uh, in, uh, inflaming and stoking violence, uh, that uh, remains to be seen. Let's, folks, nobody's got it easy, okay? I mean, you know, some people do, but nobody really has it easy. At the end of the day, we're all human beings, we're all susceptible to any of the ailments uh, ailments that uh, that come our way. Uh, none of us are perfect. None of us are immune to any of any of the ailments, if you will. Again, uh, in, in that present present themselves to us in in, the, in this world. What we need to do is be unified. Again, not unified politically, because that's that's going to go nowhere. That's going to be like a dog chasing its tail. We need to be unified in the fact that. We have inherited a country, okay, and many of us have done great things to help build and strengthen the continuation of that union, but we have inherited what is considered by many, I, I would speak for that, as the most perfect governing document to ever be written, and that would be the U.S. Constitution and its amendments and the Bill of Rights. We must unify under that and we also, as alluding to the discussion that we just concluded with Gerald, we must also keep in mind, folks, that money corrupts absolutely. Is it the money that seems to be chipping away at the foundation? of what is, in my opinion, what has been for over a couple hundred years now, the brightest beacon of hope, justice, freedom, liberty, 
love, whatever it may be. Unity, harmony, that has brought people together like no other document ever has. That is a fact, as far as I'm concerned. So let us unify under that. Let us unify under being Americans. Love of all cultures, all races, all religions, all ethnicities. And work our best towards continuing the gift that we have in regards to that United States Union. Um, closing. The Council on Foreign Relations and Betrayal of America, I dare call it treason, Servando Gonzalez. He's a former... I, I, I'm inserting this because last week we spoke with Seth Dillon. <laughs> excuse me. And uh, uh, we spoke with the representative of Project Veritas. Um, and uh, McCabe. Uh, and... Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations was something that uh, I don't believe, well, well I, 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 I needed to be uh, discussed further. So, I Dare Call It Treason is a book written by former Cuban national, okay, born in Havana, I think it was, and currently living in the United States. He's an historian, um, former guest on the program. And he dives deep into the Council on Four Relations. How does the Council on Four Relations equate to how this total uh, uh, labyrinth, corrupt labyrinth of politics that we we have in uh, in in this country? Unfortunately, um, we've allowed it to happen. Um, how does the CFR relate to that? Dick, Dick Cheney. Um, uh, in a sense, lamented the fact that he was a member of it in, uh, when, in regards to how his native people of Wyoming, if you will, uh, saw that. Uh, he kept that from them, that he was the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, why? Why would he not make that public to the people that put him, that built his political career? He wanted to hide that. Why? So what's behind the CFR? Okay, we know it's a Manhattan-based political think tank developed, I think it's a result of World War I, uh, 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 not World War II. Uh, I believe it falls between the two. Um, how are they shaping... It's a political think tank in Manhattan. Manhattan, you associate with what? Wall Street, sure. Money, banking, finance, not politics. Politics is a little further down the coast in D.C. So what is it doing as a political think tank in the world of banking. Perhaps, perhaps, because it's manipulating the banks. Hmm. That's a question I pose. And Servando uh, 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 Gonzalez, I think, uh, would, 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 would side with that. Okay. Uh, thank you for joining, tuning in, listening to Discuss Your Truth. Uh, again, we are very grateful to have received Gerald Posner onto the program. Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. March 10th was its release date. Uh, get a copy because uh, what the pharmaceutical companies are getting away with is uh, really should be and is on many levels um, 
criminal. Until next week, folks, uh, just simply do your best. Share, share, share the program, please. Share the program with friends, family. Uh, contribute uh, to it financially if you have the means. Uh, $1.50 doesn't matter. Uh, buy a shirt uh, if you have more means. Um, but most importantly, if my words resonate with you, I ask you to please send this to someone you care about. And until next week, starting out with Miriam Hennon and Dr. Hall, continuing with Temple Grandin, folks, be awesome.